Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back to the show. Uh, hope you've enjoyed the last couple of episodes. I think they've been pretty solid. I think that uh, we're covering a lot of the important issues here because, frankly, I think a lot of the media space that we have, that is the alternative media, I think is... Too often reading from the same cue cards, reading from the same talking points, providing the same kinds of analysis, the same depth of analysis or lack thereof. And uh, I think that Counterpunch really stands apart in that regard. And um, I'm really happy to say that Counterpunch, I think, has really proven itself, particularly in these very tumultuous political times. So uh, if you agree and if you think Counterpunch is worth supporting, please consider getting a subscription to the print magazine. I know I I keep hammering this, and for people who listen every week, you're like, oh god, enough about the subscriptions. But, you know, we do get new listeners every every episode, and I do want to stress the importance of supporting independent media. I mean, Counterpunch is one of the few that can honestly say that there are no outside, uh, you know, backers in the shadows. There is no state, uh, foreign state media apparatus. There is no uh, NGO. There is no large uh, non-profit organization pushing all of this. This is really independent media, and I think that that's really important, and I'm very proud to be associated with it. So uh, please do consider that. You can also make a donation to Counterpunch. Use the PayPal. It's uh, it's all tax deductible. All that stuff is, uh, you know, good for people who care about that sort of thing. Uh, so anyway, let's turn to our important uh, news of the day, our important um, subject, and I'm very happy to be able to have an expert on the line, somebody who I've spoken to a number of times before and whose analysis and work I really respect. Of course, the major news uh, of the last uh, couple of weeks has been revolving around Iran, and I'm very uh, fortunate to have Yasemin Mather on the show today. Yasemin is the acting editor of the journal Critique. She uh, is currently working at Oxford University. Uh, She's also the founder of a very important organization, Hands Off the People of Iran. You could visit the website, www dot h-o-p-o-i dot o-r-g that's hands off the people of iran h-o-p-o-i dot org yasemin mather welcome to counterpunch radio thank you very much Thank you for coming on and, and, you know, coming on to discuss such an important subject, because obviously, you know, we are watching what the Trump administration has done vis-a-vis Iran and the Iran deal. Everybody's got an opinion, but I think that a lot of people have some, let's say, misguided opinions or misinformation that they're peddling. So let's try to break all of that down. But before we can, Yasemin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how uh, how you got into doing the work that you do? Okay, I was an activist of the left in Iran. I um, supported a Marxist organization. I went to Kurdistan uh, when they were setting up a radio station. And later I was active with them uh, in their international section when most of the Iranian left were forced into exile. Um, For various reasons, I left that organization. Uh, Since then, I've been active in a number of campaigns. I've been active on the British left. And um, I suppose uh, Hopi is where most of my work has been recently. This started when the threat of war against Iran was quite um, obvious in 2008, 2009. Um, And then... Um, following on from that, we also wanted to support Iranian workers in their struggles while not uh, forgetting the main threats that did come from outside intervention. And we've tried to combine the work. Um, um, I'm very often in touch with activists of the labor movement in Iran. I try and keep up with what they are saying, but also obviously living in the West, Um, We do need to, um, and we are committed to, opposing what I would call imperialist interventions in the region, and in particular in Iran. 
Yeah, you know, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting line that you have to walk there, right? Because obviously you have deep uh, and and longstanding opposition to the government in Iran for all of the historical reasons, uh, you know, going back at least three, four decades now. And at the same time, you find yourself in a position of defending Iran against outside aggression. And there are some people who allegedly call themselves anti-imperialists who think that you can't have both of those things simultaneously, that if you're defending against foreign aggression, you should never speak ill of any government. You should never critique it. I mean, it's silly, but that's the reality. True. But you see, you have to think that, uh, first of all, various different times, the emphasis can be different. But also, there are economic policies in Iran that are not necessarily the policies of a specific faction of the Iranian government, but are global capitalist policies. And those global capitalist policies have their effect on the Iranian working class. So in a way, if you are opposing neoliberal capitalism in Iran, you are also opposing um, in some ways, economic intervention in the country. Uh, the leaders of the country haven't got my choice. I realize in real politics, maybe global capital is the only place where you can um, survive these days in the world. But I think the plight of the Iranian working class, which has a conscience, because this was the class that rose against the Shah's regime. This is the class that is showing resilience for the last five, six years against economic uh, hardship, that class deserves support as well. So I don't see them as contradictory. I see them as complementary. I totally agree. So we're going to we're going to leave that off to the side for just a few moments while we focus on the news of the day. And then I do want to return to some of those other issues. But obviously, I I, I think that any conversation about Iran uh, happening in May of 2018 obviously has to center around the recent developments. Um, Unless you're living on Mars, you know that President Trump has pulled the United States out of uh, what was President Obama's kind of landmark foreign policy, uh, his signature achievement, which was the uh, deal with Iran regarding nuclear weapons and economic normalization, the so-called JCPOA. So um, let's just begin there. Yasemin, can you tell us, uh, number one, what is the, what is the uh, you know, alleged rationale for Trump removing the United States from this deal? And how do you, how do you see, um, well, actually, before we say what the impacts are, tell us what the deal is. I think I think a lot of people are a little bit in the dark about that. What are the specifics of the deal and why does Trump pulling us out of the deal make so much of a difference? So Iran faced a number of severe sanctions, uh, especially between 2008 to 2015. Some of these got worse after 2009. Those sanctions really affected the daily lives of Iranian people, medical Um, surgical equipment couldn't be sent to Iran on the basis that it could be used, um, it had dual use, it could be used for nuclear um, weapons. Um, Medicine couldn't be sent to Iran. These sanctions were related to what the United States and the five plus, including part as part of the five plus one major nuclear powers were saying, uh, and Germany, which was separate, were saying were, um, if you like, um, Iran's plans to um, enrich uranium to a stage where it could be used in a nuclear bomb. Iran has always denied this. I I think it's not really an issue. The issue is Iran was enriching uranium. The deal put a limit on, on the level of enrichment that Iran can follow. It also forced Iran to destroy or send away uranium that was already enriched and could be potentially used for what is called weapon-grade atomic use. Um, And in exchange for this, some of the sanctions, and here I need to be careful, not all the sanctions, mainly sanctions by the European Union and sanctions about Iran selling its oil were lifted. This was in 2015. The 
United States really never lifted many sanctions because the United States sanctions have a more historic um, time. They started, um, some of them started as early as 1979, 1980. Some of them were imposed because of the hostage uh, crisis in Tehran when the embassy staff were taken hostage. So there are different levels of UN, US um, sanctions that were never lifted really. However, the United States under Obama, as you said, agreed that the severe sanctions of the latter period were going to be lifted. Now, throughout this period, financial organizations and the banking system worldwide has been wary of continuing U.S. sanctions, while Iran has adhered, as far as I can tell, by what um, the international inspectors of the atomic energy are saying, Iran adhered to uh, the letter and the spirit of the agreement. The enrichment has been stopped, the plants are open to inspection, Many of us thought Iran was giving away too much, to be honest. Not uh, that I'm in favor of atomic development or nuclear development, but it seemed like almost um, an unbalanced, um, if you like, cons um, uh, agreements that Iran conceded to while um, it had to do so because of the sanctions. One of the effects was obviously the sale of oil. Iran could, after this period, start selling oil. And this is important because it's one of the main incomes of the country. Before that, one of the issues was uh, you couldn't even insure the tankers that were taking oil from Iran, crude oil, out of Iran to anywhere in the world. So you can imagine how that hampered the economic situation. Financially, um, the, the deal had um, allowed some of Iran's money, which had been confiscated in the US, and Trump keeps going on as if this was a gift from Obama to Iran. This was Iranian money confiscated in the US, was returned to the country. Financially, there has been a lot of problems in that although European companies have invested um, in Iran, although European countries have gone back to trade with Iran, um, the return of actual um, currency to Iran has been very difficult. A number of uh, European banks have faced um, penalties, even in the last two, and two years and a bit, where the nuclear deal has been operating for trading with Iran, sanctions imposed by the United States. So if you like the, the deal, if, if anyone has um, not um, followed the deal, one could say it's the United States that hasn't done it, right? Iran has done what it could have done. Um, I think that's an absolutely fair analysis for sure. I mean, the United States not only did it break the deal by withdrawing from it, but all throughout it, it, it sought to undermine many of the fine points of the deal, including the ones that you just named. And one other thing I just wanted to add or kind of ask you about, wasn't also one of the major issues about the SWIFT system, that is yeah. the system for debt settlement that is used internationally, and because Iran had been frozen out of that, a lot of the deals that they wanted to make that might have had nothing to do with the United States or the European Union couldn't go through because the money couldn't change hands from one party to the other. Precisely. And of course, as everything else, there are ways of going around it, but it's expensive and it has created a lot of problems. In addition, Iranians of um, any um, if you like, na um, any part of Iran, people who have nothing to do with the government has, have faced sanctions imposed by European banks in fear of US sanctions being imposed upon them. So um, a, a parent sends money to their child in somewhere in Europe, the bank freezes the account because they want to investigate if this money has anything to do with nuclear weapons. And you have to go through the whole process of showing that you sold a piece of land or this was inheritance or this was your savings or whatever, and you're sending to this child and there's no connection to any nuclear program. So in a way, even ordinary citizens of Iran have faced a lot of problems, even in the last two, and two years and a bit, um, regarding any type of financial 
transfer, and this is precisely because of the restrictions on SWIFT. Indeed. Now, um, let's let's bring it forward to where we are now. Obviously, we had this uh, uh, very traumatic thing in which uh, this guy named Donald Trump became the president of the United States. And uh, we find ourselves now in a situation where even even the moderate nut jobs that had been surrounding him have really fallen by the wayside. Now he is, for all intents and purposes, surrounded by the most rabid, warmongering neocons that really that there are. And we now have a situation where this deal is now, well, at least from the United States perspective, is now null and void. And so what does this mean, Yasmin? I mean, are we, if you read some people, they'll say we're literally on the brink of war. How do you read what what we should understand about the current situation and where it's going. You are right that the current situation is very worrying. The people surrounding Trump have this revenge attitude towards Iran. And this revenge has nothing to do with the nuclear program. I don't think it has even got with what has happening in the last two decades. These are people who are who feels that American um, supremacy in terms of uh, hegemon power has been challenged in Iran in 1979 and during the embassy takeover. And these people, uh, Bannon has now left. But if you read Bannon's interviews, you can see how the image of that um, defeat is very much part of his psyche even now. Bolton is another one like that. Giuliani is another person. So for these people, it's revenge time. What they're saying doesn't make sense at all. So the idea is that the deal is bad because it did not cover Iran's um, ballistic missiles, but but also Iran's intervention. Let's be clear about that in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen. Now, this is interesting. The United States waged a war in the Middle East, which created a major gap after the fall of Saddam Hussein. It's the United States and the United Kingdoms that created the mess that is the current situation in the Middle East. Given that mess, Iran did try to benefit from the situation. I think any country, any any other country would have done the same. And in that way, they did have allies both in Syria and in Lebanon. The Saudis financed and supported um, fanatic Salafi organizations. Um, I don't want that. I don't want to divide into which particular um, organization was closer to Saudi Arabia, which one was closer to Qatar, which one was closer to various other Emirates. But the reality is that the disastrous wars that we witnessed in the Middle East were wars where these forces financed by Saudi Arabia uh, were trying to attack Iran and its allies in order to reduce Iran's, um, if you like, increasing Iran's increasing influence in the region. Um, I don't see the war in Syria any different to that. I don't see the uh, progress that some of the uh, uh, organizations close to Saudi Arabia made in Iraq different from that. It is inevitable that Iran defended its positions. As much as I don't like the Iranian government, I don't think there was any alternative. The Iranian government's argument is that had we not fought in Syria with uh, ISIS, we would have had to fight ISIS in Tehran. I think that's an exaggeration, but there is elements of truth in it, in that you uh, you couldn't forget the fact that this aggression had one aim, and that aim wasn't the West. The aim was to defeat Iran's Islamic Republic, or to weaken, at least to weaken Iran's Islamic Republic. Now, Trump is saying that because of Iran's intervention in Syria, we we can't stick to the nuclear deal. The nuclear deal was very clear. It was on the nuclear de- arms. It wasn't about Iran in Syria. It wasn't about the ballistic weapons. It wasn't about any other subject but the nuclear agreement. Now, in a way, 
the French position is even more bizarre between just before um, 11th of May, we had this before uh, 8th of May, we had this trip by Macron where he came back and he was claiming that he's going to try and convince Iran to renegotiate. This is impossible. You've made a deal. Two and a, two years has gone from it. Now you want to add other items to a deal you made two years ago. Well, I mean, Iran's rulers are not stupid. You can't do this. You can't do this with any other country. And so this whole concept that somehow, uh, and it's still being said by the Trump administration, that we want to add to the existing deal is ridiculous. No one is going to now take the United States seriously after they walked out of this deal. Why should anyone trust any deals that the United States makes? Because once you walk out of one deal, why wouldn't you walk out of the next one and say, oh, well, we didn't, we did, we forgot to, that Iran wasn't uh, sticking to X or Y or Z. And as a result of this, we are in a situation where I think uh, the United States has taken this position. The European countries are in a difficult position. They're going to try and find ways around what has happened. But the future is bleak, both for the deal, both for Iran, most importantly for Iranian people as opposed to the government, but also for the region, because we are now seeing a proxy war in Syria between Iran and Israel. We are seeing a war between Iran and Saudi Arabia in Yemen. And all of these can flare up at any time because of because the uh, absence of a deal makes the whole situation far more dangerous. Well, there's no doubt about that. And since you mentioned it, uh, I do want to ask you uh, your analysis of what we saw just a few days ago uh, in terms of this exchange, this military exchange between, uh, well, either Syrian forces or Iranian forces, depending on who you ask, and Israeli forces or Israeli targets. So uh, a lot of conflicting information, uh, a lot of seemingly contradictory information. So I don't know that we can necessarily you know, definitively adjudicate it here right now. Do you want to get your perspective on it? What have you heard about that recent exchange? Uh, and how do you read both uh, what happened and its significance, both uh, for the parties involved and the region? Okay, so since September of 2017, there has been, if I'm not mistaken, six air raids from um, Israel into Syrian territory, air territory. In most of these cases, and in particular the last two, which have been the most severe, and the last one was even the, the one on the 9th of May, was probably the most severe. The claim is that Iran has military air bases where it's training Syrian um, pilots, Syrian military, and uh, weapon uh, dumps, um, uh, ammunition and weapons dumps. Now, one of the maps that the great Israeli government has produced of these air bases includes a picture which is Mehrabad Airport in Tehran. So you can see that despite their claims of accuracy and satellite information, they clearly have got something wrong. Mehrabad Airport is nowhere near Syria. It's, it's the old Tehran Airport. Um, so um, the claim then is that um, by attacking these, they are weakening Iran's position. And now they are saying um, if Assad allows these military bases to remain, uh, they will definitely make sure Assad is deposed, which I find quite bizarre. So a country is threatening the leader of another country for inviting whoever he likes. And I might not like Assad or, the, or Iran's position in Syria, but um, you can't have Israel dictating what's going on in Syria. That is quite clear. We also have the situation where Iran isn't very open about its, the number of people it has or the number of people who indeed were killed in the last few um, weeks in uh, Syria. Uh, today there are reports that 11 Iranians died on the 9th of May. I don't know. I don't believe necessarily what comes out of various NGOs that are supposedly Syrian non-government organizations. I don't know who they are associated with. And as you said, I don't want to commit myself into one or another. But there can be no doubt that 
Iran has played a part in the fightings in Syria. Now, most of these fightings were in particular against Islamic State, ISIS, Daesh. And in those cases, it's very clear that the United States approved of Iran's intervention, including the fact, I don't know if you remember, but we had Time magazine with a picture of General Soleimani who fought both Iraq, in Iraq and in Syria against ISIS as the man who is defeating these terrible groups. So you can't have your cake and eat it in some ways. You can't, on the one hand, praise Iran for having defeated Daesh and now your ally Israel saying, well, why have they got military people in Syria? Um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that, but that is the reality. So yes, Iranians fought in Syria. As I said, it's an exaggeration to say had they not fought in Syria, they would have had to fight ISIS in Tehran. But there is elements of truth in that. Saudi Arabia was determined to use whoever it could, and it's still determined to use whoever it can against Iran's Islamic Republic. And in this task, it has it is now in a new alliance with Israel and the United States. Ultimately, I think that the issue was, okay, the Iranians can can come in and do the dirty work, that's fine, but as soon as the dirty work becomes power projection in the region, all of a sudden, now Iran is an imminent threat. Now, I think that there are, I, I don't think that everybody in Washington is a complete dummy. I think they understood this from the very beginning, and they were willing to, you know, f- for, for public consumption or what have you, say, you know, okay, the Iranians are doing well fighting against ISIS. And then as soon as that's not the issue, turn it around and say the Iranians are seeking hegemony in the region. So, you know, it's it's kind of, a, you know, a rigged game, as yeah. it were, for the Iranians, at, at least from the PR side. That's very true. Yes, you are right. I think that is the case. Um, I assume that the Israelis, even at the time of um, when Iran was fighting um, ISIS, were not very keen on Iran being so close by. And also they did probably even then, um, as we know, they were opposed to the nuclear deal. They thought they weren't very friendly with Obama relationship with Netanyahu. And Obama was the worst, I think, between um, an Israeli prime minister and a U.S. president. So we had that um, position from Israel in a consistent way. But yes, you're right. And the other aspect of that, too, is that there are other regional players involved that complicate the matter because, you know, for instance, you have the Islamic State and demonstrable evidence-based proven ties to people very highly placed in the Turkish government, money coming from Turkey flowing into the coffers of uh, the Islamic State. At the same time, Turkey has close ties to Russia. At the same time, Turkey and Iran have an on-again, off-again friendship, hatred towards each other. Saudi Arabia fits it. In other words, it's an incredibly complicated picture in which at times you have uh, strange bedfellows who literally the next day will be at each other's throats. And ultimately, I think now we're in a new stage of the Syria proxy war. Uh, call it, you know, the the uh, regional stage, because I think that ultimately, to a large extent, the fighting in Syria is winding down, and it seems that the fighting regionally is ramping up. Very true. Although uh, I still think that uh, certain countries, Saudi Arabia in particular, Israel, uh, do want to revive civil war in Syria if they can. Uh, because that's an easy place to attack Iran. Um, Attacking Iran within its own borders is far more difficult. And attacking Iran in Lebanon, given the Lebanese election and the victory of what is the Hezbollah list, um, will make it much more difficult for them to fight in Iran in Hezbollah territory, for example. Absolutely right. And 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 the other question that I have before we before we head to break, um, now that we see, you know, the 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 ramifications of what the US and, and Western policy has been in Syria, I wonder if that brings into question some of the positions and debates that we've had on the left over the Syria issue. You know, you have some factions of the I mean the Western left, uh, some factions that see, you know, Assad as really the main the, the main locus of evil, the main threat, somebody that needs 
needs to be uh, destroyed because of his crimes against the Syrian people. Uh, you have another fa faction of the left that is much more supportive of the uh, position of Russia and of the Assad government. Now that we have this regional uh, conflict emerging, I think, uh, you know, in various ways, I wonder if that calls into question some of these debates or maybe it reframes how we should be thinking about it. You are right. I think, well, I think there were genuine oppositions to Assad's rule during the Arab Spring. They weren't as big as the ones in Tahrir Square as in Tunis, but there were oppositions. And it was inevitable that once uh, the whole Arab Spring uh, started in Egypt, it would spread to other countries. So I'm not surprised that it, there were oppositions. Various forces, and in particular, I would say Saudi uh, uh, Arabia, tried to um, jump on the bandwagon of this. And at the time, it wasn't even Iran that was very important for them. At the time, it was consolidating the power of their allies. And in trying to consolidate the power of their allies, they financed um, very dubious forces in the Syrian opposition. Um, and that led to the disasters we saw. So I don't think we can say um, Assad was, if you like, a, a Democrat who would have tolerated opposition. He is the son, the son of a very brutal dictator, and he has shown himself to be brutal when necessary. Having said that, I don't think the demonstrations or the protests in Syria were anywhere the size or the dimensions of the protests in Tunisia, in uh, Egypt, in other Arab countries where the Arab Spring was flourishing. Many people want to portray it as a major rebellion by all sections of population. It wasn't like that. And anyone with any information in the Middle East would tell you that wasn't the case until the Saudis got involved. There are accusations that Assad attacked and, um, if you like, um, repressed this democratic non-religious opposition, paving the way for the religious groups. I don't know. I'm not well informed enough to be able to say that. But I think there is a period after which we are seeing a lot of manufactured news about Syria. And that is the dangerous period where you can see uh, the Western press being manipulated by all sorts of NGOs um, that one can easily detect the, the Saudi funding for them or US funding for them in, uh, in what I would call unsavory publicity. None of this means that Assad is not a, a, a dictator. I, I'm no defender of Assad. But having said that, um, I'm, I, I still see Saudi Arabia as the worst evil in the region and its allies, the United States, and currently its new ally, Israel, as the main problem. So I think one should see it in that level. I definitely agree with that. Um, in in you know in terms of the regional dynamic, certainly Saudi Arabia is the beating heart of a lot of the you know support for Salafi radical uh, groups. At the same time, I think that um, what you have in the in the context of Syria is sort of uh, you know a a what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of a perfect example, the epitome of what disinformation and misinformation from all sides can do, because ultimately uh, the extremist position from either perspective, where Assad is the glorious hero defending the nation against, uh, you know, outsider barbarians seeking to destroy it in the you know benefit of the empire, or on the other hand, Assad, the bloodthirsty maniac who feasts on the living, you know, the, the, the children of his enemies. I mean, both of the these caricatures are not that far off from where some segments of the left are providing analysis. And I think that ultimately we need to understand that, for instance, in Syria in 2011, you didn't have a mass uprising like you did in Egypt or Tunisia. What you had were economically based protests around things like subsidies and, and agricultural issues and labor issues and many other things that had happened many times before. But it was in the context of the Arab Spring that this whole thing got uh, transformed into, you know, this, this idea of a mass uprising, which I agree with you, it was not. At the same 
same time, you did have vicious repression by the government against many leaders of, of the yeah. protests and, uh, you know, of some of the other structures that were being developed, democratic structures and so forth. And that led to everything that we've seen since then. The fact that the left has such a hard time accepting that, I, I just think, is, is, is rather disheartening. It is, and I think that's the that is really the the problem. Um, I was in Egypt um, soon after the Arab Spring, and when Tahrir Square was full of people, and Al Arabiya Television, which is Saudi Arabia's broadcasting authority, was concentrating not on Tahrir Square, but on a demonstration of a few hundred people in Damascus. And it was portraying Damascus as the center of the Arab Spring. Now, that tells me a lot. I'm not saying there was a conspiracy. All I'm saying is the idea is that tens of thousands of people in Tahrir Square were censored by Al-Arabiya, but a hundred or a few hundred in Damascus were giving such prominence, tell, told me a lot about what happened later regarding Syria. Indeed. Okay, we got to take a break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit more about some other recent developments in Iran, um, including the recent protests that happened at the beginning of the year uh, and uh, how we should be understanding that. I also want to talk a little bit more about what we should expect uh, regionally and internationally, and also interesting the position of the European Union in all of this and of some of the European uh, major players in in this dynamic. I think that they're now in a very awkward situation. So we'll touch on all that on the other side of the break. I'm chatting with Yasemin Mather. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Scientist, or even on your very own street, maybe even be a rap star. Time switcher, you can change old pictures, make a better situation for your mother and your big mom. Make dollars on the ride and the house, get it right, use your power, getting everything you did wrong. Then you say, Look at where I'm at now. Straight poverty, death is in my backyard. Don't feel us get 50 G's a pack while my teacher don't really give a damn about a black child. And grown folks say, Tell the truth and act foul. Say no to drugs, hiding all they crack vibes. And talk all about peace and love and God, but then why are we ignore killing people in Iraq now? And on her face is a smile and now it's brighter up in her world It makes her stronger now she's gotta carry on and be a very good mama This is life, let it unfurl And she's doing it, mother of the earth now Found a blessing in the struggle through a first child Kept going, kept growing, kept flowing, kept striving, kept knowing God would make a way somehow Live your life, girl, show them how it's done now I believe in you, so keep it moving till the sun's down Never let them hold you back from anything you want now Life is what it right, so find them treasures that are unfound Keep on, keep going, march on, move on, keep blowing up Keep on, keep going, march on, move on, stay strong, keep going, keep blowing it up And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I highly recommend you follow Yasemin's work. It's really uh, some of the best work on Iran, in my opinion. The website, hopoi.org. That's Hands Off the People of Iran, an important organization to follow. Uh, also, uh, Yasemin is the acting editor of the journal Critique, and she is based out of Oxford University. So, Yasemin, we were talking before the break about a number of uh, regional issues, but I wanted to begin this 
portion of our chat talking about the social the, the social and economic situation in Iran, something that doesn't get nearly enough attention, but is, of course, a major factor in all of these considerations. So at the very beginning of the year, I want to say it was right around New Year's or maybe it was the end of December, uh, we saw an upsurge of protest in Iran. Now, if you would have turned on CNN or Fox News, you would have thought the entire Iranian state was collapsing, uh, you know, and that it would imminently fall. The government was imminently going to fall. Of course, none of that happened. And the protests seemingly have kind of become a historical footnote. But I want you to tell us, A, what were those protests really about? And B, what is happening on the street in Iran right now? What are the social movements like to the extent that they exist? And is that uh, sentiment still uh, likely to reemerge? Okay, first of all, I think we have to realize that Iran is a country within global capitalism. Every year, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, send inspectors to Iran and they tell the Iranian government what privatization plans they have, what subsidies have to be reduced. And most of the time, both during Ahmadinejad, but also during Rouhani, and maybe more during Rouhani, uh, but uh, no, I would say that's a mistake, both during Ahmadinejad and during uh, Rouhani, a lot of those policies become the economic plan of the government. The government announced its budget proposals in late for the Iranian New Year in late December. By then, the people were already very worried about the economic situation. None of the miracles that were supposed to have happened uh, because of the nuclear deal had actually materialized. Uh, the rate of exchange is very high. The dollar was at that time about 4,002 months. Iran imports a lot of goods, uh, including basic food items, so that the prices were going up and up. Salaries are not. Salaries were getting further and further below the poverty line at times. But also, Iranian capitalists have learned a very good trick. It's done not just in Iran, in India. I, I noticed it happens in lots of third world countries. It happens. And that is systematic non-payment of wages. Because jobs are so scared, because graduates don't have jobs and work as um, in the service sector or um, skilled workers uh, are fighting for very few jobs in uh, industry, company owners don't pay the salary for, say, three months. Then they pay for two months. Then they don't pay for another three months. The workers in all of these places go to work every day, even though they haven't been paid. Why do they do so? Because unemployment is a worse scenario, because they don't want to lose the jobs they have. They would be in complete poverty. They might subsidize their family's income by driving a taxi at night and then going to work early in the morning. They might subsidize by selling goods in the street in the evening, but they keep their jobs. They don't want to leave their job. And this has led to a situation where the workers were protesting for months and months before CNN or anybody else <laughs> broadcast the news about it. Um, and there is also uh, a problem regarding quite a lot of the funds that were associated with retirement funds of government employees. Government employees, retire, pensioners were demonstrating about the risk to their pension because of the economic situation. So this, the protests of late December, early January were on the whole economic protests. They, they did take a political side to them because obviously the government didn't want the protest to spread. There was um, suppression of the protest. And in any situation like that, you can see that immediately an economic protest becomes a political one. But uh, And there, were, there was a lot of, if you like, uh, attempts by various groups to try and intervene. None of them managed to do much except the odd photos they put on social media of claiming that this or that other protest was in their, in defense of their group or their organization. None of it was true. Most of it was genuine, spontaneous demonstrations by people against economic the, 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 the economic situation. And I think it's partly expectations. The expectation after 2015 was that the economic situation would get a lot better. That didn't happen. 
on the reverse, um, I think people are really facing very serious economic hardship in Iran. It's going to get worse. The anxiety about Trump's announcement meant that the dollar, the rate of the dollar moved another third up. So it's now 6,000. And by the end of next week, it probably will be 7,000. So the rate of exchange is very important because uh, it affects the price of rice. It affects the price of basic food items. But it also means that the expenses in major cities where the majority of the population live goes up and therefore ordinary people are upset and angry and they protest. I think the government reacted in two ways. On the one hand, they tried to say, oh, nothing is happening. It's all, um, um, it's only a minority. It's only a dozen. They weren't huge. I don't think the protests were huge, but the spread they spread to 75 cities, so they weren't insignificant either. They were, if you like, the largest protests we've seen uh, since 2009. And they weren't supporting one faction or another. I think Rouhani and Zarif benefited from a level of popularity after the nuclear deal. It was already clear that Trump is likely to move away from the the deal, but also it was all clear that the promised economic um, benefits weren't coming to Iran. So that was the combination of events that created the situation. I noticed you mentioned about uh, in your introduction about uh, funding. You don't have support from a state. Well, Iranian people are unlucky to have a number of major broadcasting um, broadcasts 24-7 to their country, paid by um, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the, the ex-royal family, the United States, and so on. And most of these were trying to, um, if you like, uh, both portray the situation different from what it was, but also get their own um, agenda added to the protest. I don't think many of them succeeded, uh, partly because the Iranian people aren't stupid. They do remember why they overthrew the Shah's regime. They are not going back that route. However many TV stations broadcast memories of Farah Diba or the ex-empress or the pretender to the throne. Very interesting. Um, you know, one thing that one thing that that reminds me of. You know, I was in Venezuela in 2015 when uh, a lot of those same issues were really bubbling up, and uh, that was the that was the election that the uh, that the Chavista government lost, and the right wing uh, came back into the legislature, and a lot of it had to do with uh, disappointment with the government and not being able to deliver on some very basic. Uh, promises and you know things like staple foods uh, becoming too expensive for ordinary people that leads to the kind of social instability and ultimately chaos that a country like Israel or the United States or Saudi Arabia would instantly attempt to capitalize on the issue I think too is that uh, you had a government coming into power well before the nuclear deal was signed and that government was supposed to be that's the Rouhani Zarif government, that government was supposed to be reasonable and practical and pragmatic and Western-oriented, Western-educated, and that they understood the United States and understood the British and understood the West, and therefore they could make a deal and they could bring Iran into the future of a normalized economic uh, situation. And none of that has happened. And a lot of, I, I think, quite reasonable people would then look at the government that they elected and say, so why are you in power again? Yes. That's very true. There is an additional aspect, and that is that the rich have become richer in Iran. So the gap between the rich and the poor is growing. It's a worldwide trend. It's not unique to Iran. I think the elite in all the countries, the 1% is going, getting richer and richer. But Iranian people see that as another aspect of what they don't like about their country's rulers. 
Exactly. Now, uh, one of the things that I was most interested in when the uh, nuclear deal was first signed really wasn't uh, the United States, but the Europeans, because I think everybody understood that uh, when the Iranian market was opened up to, you know, foreign investors, that it was going to be the, you know, the, the French Total or Italian ENI or the Norwegian Stat Oil or any of those other major oil uh, concerns from Europe that were going to rush into Iran well before BP or ExxonMobil or some of these other companies were going to be able to do so. And I'm just, I'm wondering, now that now that we have the scenario in which the United States is attempting to torpedo this deal, what is the position of the Europeans? How are they going to try to walk the line between not breaking with the United States, which I don't think they can do, but at the same time attempting to capitalize on a situation that the U.S. has basically destroyed? Well, it's interesting. Both the French and the Germans have been making quite a lot of claims in the last few days. Um, the British Foreign Minister Boris Johnson is saying we are looking at non-dollar deals with Iran, which I'm not quite sure how you can do. But anyway, so uh, the French uh, Foreign, uh, the French Economics Minister is very keen to continue. They have sold a hundred Airbuses to Iran. Trump is saying that deal has to be cancelled. Um, I think 100 Airbus is not just the money that comes in, it's the jobs that it creates in France. It's not a minor issue for the French economy, which only a few years ago had serious problems. And it still has facing uncertainty in certain areas. So the French and the Germans are trying to see what they can do. And there are they are looking at various options. One of them apparently is that, and I don't think they will go that route because they're not brave enough, but one of them is to actually complain about the, the US withdrawal. Now, the, the actual deal has nothing about a country walking out of the deal. It has a lot about what would happen if Iran enriched nuclear weapon, nuclear grade uh, um, uranium, but there's nothing about a country walking out. But I think there are it, this is, if you like, leaving the deal in some ways by the United States. And apparently they are looking at that. They're also looking at convincing at the same time. They're looking at convincing Iran in the 120 days they've got, which is the limit where sanctions by the United States will start against European companies, to, um, if you like, convince Iran to renegotiate the deal. Again, as I said in the introduction, I can't see Iran renegotiating. It hasn't, this deal hasn't exactly been very good for Iran. Why should they renegotiate a second one? Um, they are looking also at other options in terms of circumventing the U US sanctions. There are ways you could, for example, buy it from India. And this has happened, or uh, I, I'm not saying India as a country, country X. Um, and so the deal will go via a third country. All of this is going to be costly, both for Europeans and for the Iran. Uh, but also there will always be the fear that in this age where uh, transfer of money is traceable and very easily traceable, that uh, the deals will still uh, 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 invite new sanctions, new penalties by the United States. The Europeans aren't taking this line down. They're not take, They're not accepting it, not because they're friendly with Iran, but because economically, all of them, for their own various reasons, need these deals. It's a, it's a market of 70 to 80 million people, skilled labor, as Rouhani and Zarif have t at times told European investors, um, educated, skilled, English-speaking, and with no trade unions, <laughs> with no uh, organization. No, uh, uh, you can pay as little as you want. And as we know, many of them don't even get paid for months. So it's, if you like, a good um, market, but also a good place to exploit the working class. Um, and the Europeans are very keen to benefit from that. For Britain, it's important. It's moving out of Europe in economic uncertainties about Brexit, Various other issues have made the economic situation pretty risky in Britain, and Britain is very keen not to lose out to France and Germany in the battle for Iranian markets. So all of them 
are looking, whether they would succeed or not is a different matter. I think all of this will depend on how far the trade war between US and the European Union will develop in the next six months. If there is no trade war, if everything is sweet and rosy between the United States and the European Union, it could be that they would accept the reality of uh, ending the, the deals after 120 months. But I can see that right now in, in Europe, there is quite a resistance. Indeed. Now, one of the interesting players in all of this, in my opinion, uh, is the man Vladimir Putin, because Putin is sitting in Moscow saying to himself, well, I'm going to uh, I, I was I was central in the entire, you know, the P5 plus one. I'm very much, you know, uh, touting international uh, law and uh, adherence to agreements and all of that. At the very same time, Russia pre uh, presents itself as in, at, at various times, and uh, if not an ally, then certainly a partner of the Iranians, certainly in regard to Syria. I think it's an obvious example, perhaps in other places as well. And at the very same time, Iran is a major threat to Russia for the perp uh, in the context of providing oil and gas to Europe. The entire issue of the last few years about European dependence on Russian energy has been lurking in the background of the entire Iran negotiation process because I think a lot of the European countries, and we've seen specific examples of this, view Iran as a potential way to get around this uh, sort of addiction to Russian energy that flows westward into Europe. And so Putin is in one sense, wants to defend the deal. On the other hand, is very close with Netanyahu and is watching all of this and saying, well, looks like Russian energy is stronger by the day. Very true. In a way, this whole battle about oil and gas is very often about stopping a country getting um, um, selling oil to another place. It's not, no one is, given that there is uh, shale oil in the US, given that the whole oil market is different, this is not, these battles are not about um, keeping oil, but about stopping Iran selling to X, Y, and Z. Or, in the case of Europeans, uh, stopping their dependence on Russian oil. So it's, if you like, a negative battle rather than a positive one. Um, and it's very interesting to see how that happens. Having said that, I think the crucial, uh, the, Iran sells oil mainly to China. China is one of Iran's biggest buyers. And um, I think that would could get, um, that could go further if the deal is completely, um, completely falls out. And the Chinese are ready to insure their own tankers and deal with the issue of tanker insurance themselves. Again, the problem for the United States, for the Europeans, is the idea that they want to stop Iran selling oil to China. And how can they do that? I assume they can then try and impose, or the United States would try and impose sanctions on China. Well, that would that would change, I think, the dynamic entirely. Now it, we're running out of time, so before before that happens, I do want to ask you about another aspect of this story that I think is, to a large extent, uh, I don't want to say it's ignored, but I think that people just don't pay attention all that much because they don't know that. The internal politics in Iran is very much dependent upon these international issues. As I said earlier, uh, the Rouhani government, to a large extent, its main mandate was to get Iran back to a position of normalcy in the international community, get those sanctions lifted, get the economy going, and if we have to bite the bullet and you know swallow our pride, then so be it. Well, it seemingly has become a failure, uh, certainly uh, looks that way. So that then begs the question, does this then open the door for a resurrection of the hardliners in Iran? You hear rumblings about Ahmadinejad mulling, uh, you know, uh, a comeback bid politically, certain other elements within the, you know, the broad tent of the hardline faction in Iran that have been vehemently opposed to everything, including the deal uh, initially, including everything that's happened since then. Tell us a little bit about the internal politics and 
what we should expect from the hardline faction, given that the deal is falling apart? The hardline faction has been saying, we told you so. You can't trust the United States. I believe Khamenei had said at some stage during the negotiations in 2015, you can't trust the United States. And of course, now he's saying I was proved r- proven right. Ahmadinejad, I don't think it's in a position for a comeback because the important sections of the conservative faction, of the fundamentalist factions, have disowned him. And his base is limited to uh, only his own supporters, so he can't rely on the conservative factions as a whole. The crucial uh, factor, as always, remains the supreme leader, not just because he's supreme leader, but because the conservative factions will mainly look at what he says. His reaction on Wednesday was very, uh, was to a certain extent muted. He said, we will stay in this, we will work with the Europeans. If the Europeans can't give us guarantees that they uh, will maintain this, then we will consider other options. So at the moment, he is, if you like, the calming factor in this. I think the threat is now unfortunately coming from um, the kind of oppositions that uh, the um, uh, <laughs> that this the United States and Saudi Arabia and so on try and create amongst the young people in Iran, and that is that there is no hope, there is no other solution, um, that regime change is the only way, um, and try and forget, try and convince people not to remember regime change in Iraq, regime change in Libya, both very clear in the minds of Iranian people, or indeed in Syria, which has led to bloodshed, civil war, destruction. Uh, Iranian people always talk of the fact that they have economic difficulties, but at least their cities are standing up. There is no wholesale destruction of entire cities. Um, But I think the attempt by the United States, and you can clearly see this in Trump and in Bolton and Giuliani, their aim is regime change from above. They're doing everything they can to achieve that. Um, My surprise is that the Iranian leaders don't seem to be uh, aware of this and are constantly creating more restrictions for ordinary civilians for ordinary people in Iran, which creates, uh, paves the ground for this type of intervention to gain support. So I'm more worried about that than I am about the conservative factions, because I I think Khamenei is a very astute politician. I might dislike the guy, but I know that he's a very astute politician. He is going to wait and see what happens with the Europeans. Yeah, and one has to wonder what what uh, you know what other kinds of methods that the United States would use. I mean, we heard that uh, Mike D'Andrea, the infamous CIA drone chief, who is uh, you know been written about extensively, that he's now in charge of covert operations in Iran. One can only imagine what sort of destabilization he envisions for Iran and how they might use some of that social discontent and some of those economic problems. Problems in order to try to foment some kind of uh, destabilization that can be used as a pretext. Exactly. But there is also now talks that the Israelis have been given a green light to assassinate um, General uh, Soleimani, plus, um, the Iranian military uh, uh, revolutionary guards leader. These kind of things will test Iran. Iran has shown quite, in my opinion, quite a lot of restraint in recent weeks, partly because it was waiting for the Trump decision. Now it's waiting for European reactions to the Trump decision. But you can't, I think there would be a limit to that. And once that limit is gone, the Iranians might um, enter into an adventure that would justify, for example, air bombing of Iran um, by the United States or by Israel. So I think the Israelis are very keen to enter a new war. They do want it for their own reasons, because it will help ethnic cleansing uh, of Palestinians. And in order to get to that war, they want to uh, create enough problems for Iran to make a mistake and to use that mistake to bomb Iran. So I guess the final question is, do you think that the Iranians are going to make such a mistake? I don't think so, and I certainly hope they don't. Uh, 
but there is a limit to anyone's patience. And I think that uh, both the attacks in Syria, the fact that now Israel is given a green light to assass- by the United States to assassinate a senior Iranian. We already have assassinations of Iranian nuclear physicists by uh, Mossad, but now we have this green light. Uh, it really, we are entering a very dangerous situation with quite a ignorant but dangerous man in the White House. Couldn't agree more. I guess we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Yasemin Mather, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Yasemin is the acting editor of the journal Critique. She's based at Oxford University. The website, hopoi.org. That's handsoffthepeopleofiran.org. Yasemin, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for uh, very good questions.